I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Hello and welcome to the Return of the Repressed and the very first Q&A. So many nice questions, thank you. It's been great, especially the recorded ones. And uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> There's been, uh, I, well, I mean, it's not only because there were so many questions, there weren't that many, but uh, it's mainly because I'm, I have some obsession to to really answer them thoroughly and that is why I think not all questions will be answered today well I know that all questions will not be answered today since I've got an estimate of the notes <laughs> which are my answers um, oh and I also want to say before we start I'm very sorry to the people who are subscribed on Spotify um, it's definitely a better service it seems like in terms of like giving me money <laughs> because there's less fees <laughs> but it's very uh, problematic when it comes to uh, communicating with you uh, I saw that somebody was complaining that they couldn't access for example um, a particular episode then I saw that you removed that comment and then you, you had something very kind instead to say and then I published it so I'm hoping still you know, that that didn't uh, that that wasn't a problem in the end I tried to find your email as I tried to find everybody's email to like sort of tell you that there was a Q&A coming up. But again, uh, alas, there was no way of really communicating. I tried, There was like an Excel document you can download and then there was nothing there. I don't know why. But since there's going to be at least one more episode, you know, write me on uh, the mail. Marcus uh, at Rise Up. Uh, which is located in the uh, the bio of uh, the uh, podcast itself, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to talk so much about myself during these questions, so there's no need that I'm, you know, open up with something. What have you been doing this week? <laughs> I have uh, been doing the same thing as always, uh, going to the office, commuting. It's uh, bullshit. Everybody knows what that's like. Um, so, I'll just jump right into it. Uh, and again, like uh, this is no particular order. It's not like I thought some questions were more interesting than interesting than others, uh, or that I'm following, you know, the chronology um, after which you uh, posted them. It's uh, simply that some questions are a little bit easier to answer than others. 
some questions I thought were easy, then I get into, you know, trying to find my answer and it takes forever. Uh, some questions get very lengthy, etc. etc. But um, Axel Steele and Family Gorgeous have asked two questions that are somewhat similar and relates to the the name of the show. So I'll start with them. Axel Steele says uh, asks can you talk a little bit about your experience with psychoanalysis? Good question. And uh, Family Gorgeous says asks what is the repressed and why is it returning? Okay. Let's have a go at answering these questions. Well, for me, capitalism is the return of the repressed. The feeling of not being quite at home in this world, even though we have always already lived here. Um, Freud always emphasized that, uh, you know, the indestructible, quote-unquote, nature of unconscious material, as likewise the irreducible character of memory traces. Now, if we were to speak then of a capitalist unconscious, uh, though the technology of capitalism makes it appear as something new, its highest dreams are very old, especially that which is at the very center of our social experience of its material reproduction, namely class society. This wish, and indeed the repression against it, lingers restless throughout the larva and chrysalis stages of its becoming and never left us or it. Uh, Freud says, quote, impressions which have been sunk into the id by repression are virtually immortal. After the passage of decades they behave as though they had just occurred, end of quote. He said this in the interpretation of dreams. Um, the virtual immortality here mentioned is with regard to our ancestors' impression of the insistence of class categorizing, of course, something which makes sure that the crimes of that long list of undead kings will never be forgotten. I would go so far as to say that it will become even an obstacle to artificial intelligence should we, as a species, try to force it to merely imitate or and reproduce the infantile elementary dreams of someone like Elon Musk. Freud says, quote, what is forgotten is not extinguished but only repressed. Its memory traces are present in all their freshness but isolated by antikathesis. They are unconscious inaccessible to consciousness, end of quote. Uh, this is from Moses and Monotheism. The antikathesis, uh, which he speaks of, is the energy which the ego invests to block undesirable or objectional impulses of the id from entering the consciousness. And though I believe here, and in the previous example, that in the Maoist sociological sense, rebellion, is justified. We should, however, not make the mistake of treating our own psyche or body in the way that we would treat the order and censorship of capitalism. 
um, you know, Freud doesn't speak about capitalism, right? This is me, this is me making a very common sort of skip or jump over directly from what he says to what we might feel, uh, you know, collectively under, you know, and I also threw in some uh, sort of the assumption that uh, repressed memories can be inherited from a previous generation, right? Um, Freud does speak about that as well, but uh, not in the citation that I read. Anyway, uh, you know, for Freud, and repressed wishes are not destroyed in the unconscious, rather they are forever re-emerging in the form of what are generically called derivatives of the unconscious, some of which, quote, uh, become conscious as substitutive formations and symptoms. Generally, it is true, after having undergone great distortion as compared with the unconscious, though often retaining many characteristics which call for repression. End of quote. Now, such derivatives include not only symptoms but also fantasies, slips of tongue, and parapraxis in general, and even certain character traits. They are expressions of the unconscious manifesting themselves in consciousness. Um, you know, without this necessarily implying that what has been repressed becomes conscious. Something appears to us. Uh, we don't know necessarily what that is, <laughs> but it nonetheless manifests itself. Right? You know, because you see it, it can no longer be said to be unconscious. You feel it, right? It'd be ridiculous to speak of capitalism as purely unconscious. I mean, ideology is in a way unconscious, and we are unconscious about some things about capitalism, but if you were to look around, <laughs> dear friends, there would be something there, right? In other words, the repressed returns, but often remains unrecognizable. Now, such returns of the repressed are par excellence the material that the psychoanalyst works on, or any analyst, to be honest, <laughs> like him down there, and they may refer as easily to the transference as to associations produced in the analytic session that are connected to the repressed ideas. And this is the, you know, the analytic session doesn't not necessarily have to be the clinic here, right? It can be um, the times that you do find yourself thinking about things, right? That those short moments where you stop and wonder about what's happening. And uh, I have suggested, you know, should we assume that there is something stopping us from that? I have suggested on more than one occasion that labor is a kind of parapraxis, a pseudo activity. I mentioned parapraxis earlier, right? Um, and by pseudo activity, meaning, you know, we say we commit to it for the sake of a salary, and of course, insofar that it is needed to survive, it is a real practice. But insofar that it is also a social compulsion, it is not too far out to speak about the pyramids as ideological reproduction apparatuses, which still have some battery juice in them, right? We really do believe that Arbeit macht frei, right? <laughs> this is the problem. 
Now, I do not want to get overly technical. I have so far. I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't start, you know, a Q&A like this, but, you know, uh, I think what, you know, this show is about is rather the anxiety which the return of the repressed provokes. This is, of course, the uncanny, das Unheimliche. So, we gotta ask ourselves, what is the uncanny? Well, let's follow Freud in his investigations from 1919, in that paper so-called Das Unheimliche. But before we do, um, I might give an example of my personal experience as to also answer uh, one of the other questions. Now, the story concerns my own psychosis and its treatment. Lacan said that uh, when treating a psychotic there should be two analysts. Uh, the reason for this, I think, was to overcome the stress of counter-transference. Um, and if I was to explain it, I would put it, you know, in the way that um, the first reason uh, for this, you know, the stress of counter-transference, um, might be something which we might consider more noble, seeing as it is, you know, simply that of transference being another word for love. And when the listener hears how much the psychotic suffers, the doctor, lost for words, might feel compelled, out of compassion, to tell the sufferer that she also suffers, and that the sufferer is not alone, and in so doing tells stories of her own. Now, a more egotistical reason, and I'm not blaming anyone here, this is simply the consequence of being a human, is that the analyst the doctor believes that the psychotic knows more about suffering than others. Perhaps the doctor even supposes that the psychotic knows the cause and reason for her own suffering, that is the doctor's suffering, thus by telling the psychotic of her own stories she might be able to bribe the psychotic and suss out what it is that she supposes that the psychotic knows. Now I was given an analyst by the state, a Jungian, who had been forced to, you know, surrender to the modus operandi of the CBT, the Cognitive Behavioral Therapist consensus, simply to keep her job. Um, an injustice uh, I do not even wish upon the Jungians. Now, <laughs> I could never afford to pay two psychoanalysts out of my own pocket, even with social democratic subsidies, and was in turn forced to go alone for the ride. Very early on in the treatment, the power of countertransference proved itself through experience. Most of our sessions became moments where she, my doctor, would break down, sometimes even crying, telling me about her past, for example how she had been a member of the Osho cult. Uh, I've realized many people don't know this guy by the name of the Osho cult, so wait, I'm just gonna check here quickly. What is the is this uh, Sanyasin Rainesh, ne? the Rainesh cult? It was in that uh, documentary on Netflix about the wild, wild country, right? Bhagavan Sri Rainesh, there he is, uh, right wing fanatic, but that's for another story. Um, yeah, she had been a member of this uh, cult in her youth, and often uh, when regaining her professional composure, she would make me swear not to tell anyone of this 
out of fear of losing her job. What she assumed that I might know about, you know, quote-unquote, the mysteries of the East, <laughs> I do not know, but uh, that she assumed this became increasingly clear. We eventually realized, uh, I myself probably a lot earlier than she did, that this could not go on since the whole point of our meetings was not for her to re-establish my confidence in some of the more outlandish fantasies that I had um, by having you know, me reassure her simply by listening quietly to the returning memories and stories that was bringing her so much pain. Uh, in conclusion, I don't think that the whole scenario was wasted. It, it probably motivated a, a compassion in me to become a personal assistant to a man with cerebral palsy for a while, three years or something, um, since the degree I had in psychoanalytical theory was of the social sciences, that is analyzing books and ideological source material, and uh, could not grant me any kind of you know clinical experience as a analyst. But uh, you know, let's return now to the uncanny, because this is very interesting. It is put forward in an essay, and as such, unrestrained by some of the more you know excessive jargon uh, of more technical papers aimed at doctors, thus, in other words, quite accessible. However, one still needs to trust him, because it starts off quite boring. He begins by looking up the meaning of the words heimlich and unheimlich in all the dictionaries. Page after page, he delves into the etymology of these words. And when he finally turns to quoting the philosopher Schelling, the reader wonders if he has completely lost his way. But just then, he makes a discovery. The uncanny is, if we are to trust the collective wisdom of language, something that everyone knows, but which should have remained a secret. Once the philological overture is over, Freud decides to play the empiricist for a while. He lists the situations that tend to make people's hair stand on end. He also enlists the help of the scientific community. His colleague, Jentsch, had presented the thesis that uncanniness is due to intellectual uncertainty. For example, that one cannot uh, know whether a creature is alive or dead. Freud finds the solution inadequate, but is inspired by it. Freud furthermore notes that there is something uncanny about the very word, since at times Heimlich acquires the sense that otherwise belongs to Unheimlich. The connection is somewhat lost in English, but still remains in Swedish as the Heim, literally home, of uh, hemlit, hemlikt, as in secret, still speaks of that which is hemlikt, but perhaps uh, points instead towards a place of the home which no prying eyes should reach. And this is where we get to his analysis of an old short story called The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman. 
Um, I read the story in preparation for this answer, and even if you find psychoanalysis uninteresting, but do like mystery and occult stories, then I highly suggest it. It's a great story. It has a kind of a black mirror vibe to it, and it can certainly still entertain and frighten you 200 years later. Uh, actually, maybe us even more than it did its readers back then. Let's see if you agree. Freud introduces the story thus. Uh, quote, a student named Nathaniel, with whose childhood memories uh, this fantastic tale opens, is unable, for all his present happiness, to banish certain memories connected with the mysterious and terrifying death of his much-loved father. On certain evenings, his mother would send the children to bed early, with the warning, the Sandman is coming. And sure enough, on each such occasion, the boy would hear the heavy tread of a visitor, with whom his father would then spend the whole evening. It is true that when asked about the Sandman, the boy's mother would deny, and I might add, Marcus, uh, indeed she uses this uh, very word, which might complicate things when we start to consider how much our mothers have caringly helped us in our own censorship as we grew ready for this world. Um, that any such person existed, she denies this, except as a figure of speech. But a nursemaid was able to give him more tangible information. Why, Natty, replied the old woman, don't you know that yet? He's a wicked man who comes to children when they don't want to go to bed and throws handfuls of sand into their eyes that makes their eyes fill with blood and jump out of their heads, and he throws the eyes into his bag and takes them into the crescent moon to feed his own children who are sitting in the nest there. The Sandman's children have crooked beaks like owls with which to peck the eyes of naughty human children. I now formed a hideous mental picture of the cruel Sandman and as soon as the heavy steps came upstairs in the evening, I would tremble with fear and horror. My mother could extract nothing from me except the stammering, tearful cry, The Sandman! The Sandman! I would then run to my bedroom and be tormented all night by the frightful apparition of the Sandman. We then learn that his nightly visits to his father goes on for years. And uh, by the way, before I continue, if you want to hear the whole story, um, I listened to it in Swedish, but used here the samples from the YouTube channel Horror Babble. Um, it also has a patron, and I sent him the equivalent money of one subscription of my own show as a thanks, and hope he doesn't mind that I used his work uh, without asking. I can't wait for him to ask, right? Um, it's it's well worth uh, listening to it, and uh, you know, if you listen to my whole answer now, you I would spoil some of the uh, story, but you know maybe you don't care. <laughs> Going on then, eventually our young protagonist uh, decides one evening to hide inside his father's cabin to finally catch a glimpse of the hideous Sandman. Gently, gently. I opened the door of my father's study. He was sitting, as usual, silent and motionless, with his back to the door, 
and did not notice me. I slipped inside and hid behind the curtain, which was drawn in front of an open wardrobe next to the door. The rambling steps came closer and closer. Strange sounds of coughing, scraping, and muttering could be heard. My heart was quaking with fear and anticipation. Right outside the door, a firm step, a violent tug at the latch, and the door sprang open with a clatter. Bracing myself with an effort, I peeped cautiously out. The Sandman was standing in the middle of the room, facing my father, with the light shining brightly in his face. The Sandman, the frightful Sandman, was the old advocate Capellius, who sometimes had lunch with us. But the most hideous of shapes could not have filled me with deeper horror than this same Capellius. Imagine a big, broad-shouldered man with a massive, misshapen head, a pair of piercing, greenish, cat-like eyes sparkling from under bushy gray eyebrows, and a large beaky nose hanging over his upper lip. His crooked mouth was often distorted in a malicious smile, and then a couple of dark red spots appeared on his cheeks, and a strange hissing sound proceeded from between his clenched teeth. Capellius was always seen wearing an ash-gray coat of old-fashioned cut, with waistcoat and breeches to match, but with black stockings and shoes with little jeweled buckles. His small wig scarcely covered more than the crown of his head. His greasy locks stood on end above his big red ears, and a large, tightly tied pigtail stuck out from the back of his neck, disclosing the silver buckle that fastened his crimped cravat. His entire appearance was repellent and disgusting, but we children had a particular aversion to his big, gnarled, hairy hands, and anything touched by them ceased at once to be appetizing. My father welcomed Capellius with much formality. "'Come on, let's get to work,' cried Capellius in a hoarse, croaking voice, throwing off his coat. My father, silent and frowning, took off his dressing gown, and the two of them donned long black smocks. I did not notice where these came from. My father opened the folding doors of a cupboard, but I saw that what I had so long taken for a cupboard was instead a dark recess containing a small fireplace. Capellius walked over to it, and a blue flame crackled up from the hearth. All manner of strange instruments were standing around. Merciful heavens! As my old father bent down to the fire, he looked quite different. A horrible, agonizing convulsion seemed to have contorted his gentle, honest face into the hideous, repulsive mask of a fiend. He looked like Capellius. The latter, brandishing a pair of red-hot tongs, was lifting gleaming lumps from the thick smoke and then hammering at them industriously. It seemed to me that human faces were visible on all sides, but without eyes and with ghastly, deep, black cavities instead. "'Bring the eyes! Bring the eyes!' cried Capellius in a hollow, rumbling voice. Gripped by uncontrollable terror, I screamed out and dived from my hiding place onto the floor. Capellius seized me, gnashing his teeth and bleating, "'Little beast! Little beast!' He pulled me to my feet and hurled me onto the fireplace, where the flames began to singe my hair. "'Now we've got eyes, eyes, a fine pair of children's eyes,' whispered Capellius, thrusting his hands into the flames and pulling out fragments of red-hot coal, which he was about to strew in my eyes. My father raised his hands imploringly and cried, "'Master! Master! Let my Nathaniel keep his eyes! Let him keep them!' With a piercing laugh, Capellius cried, <laughs> "'All right, 
the boy may keep his eyes and snivel his way through his lessons, but let's examine the mechanism of his hands and feet. And with these words he seized me so hard that my joints made a cracking noise, dislocated my hands and feet, and put them back in various sockets. They don't fit properly. It was all right as it was. The old man knew what he was doing. Hissed and muttered Capellius, but everything went black and dim before my eyes. A sudden convulsion shot through my nerves and my frame, and I felt nothing more. A warm, gentle breath passed over my face, and I awoke from a death-like sleep. My mother was bending over me. Is the Sandman still there? I stammered. No, my dear child, he's been gone for a long, long time. He'll do you no harm, said my mother, kissing and cuddling her darling boy, who was thus restored to life. The letter continues, and uh, we learn that there is one more last visit by Coppelius, a name which we could read as uh, Compelius, I guess, to already suggest something about the uncanny nature of the compulsion of repetition. I will not linger too much on that either now or later, but... During this last visit, an explosion is heard and Nathaniel, shortly thereafter, finds his dead father on the floor surrounded by his weeping sisters and mother. Then the letter ends and what follows uh, is an answering letter from Nathaniel's lover, Clara, whom he has accidentally sent the first letter to even though the letter itself addresses Lothair, his best friend and Clara's brother. I will not uh, touch upon the possible nature of this accidental slip, um, but uh, it should be noted that these letters are being sent many years in the future. The reason for the return of the repressed, the story which Nathaniel is telling, is that a barometer dealer, or weather glass, uh, depends on which version of the story you have, um, barometer, everybody knows what a barometer is, but uh, a weather glass is, you know, those um, uh, glasswares used in physics or in alchemy, you know, uh, with a round bottom which can be heated and then, you know, there's uh, pipes going in different directions and whatnot, um, have come to his student apartment uh, trying to sell him his wares and is uh, identified by Nathaniel as this same mysterious Coppelius. Uh, in this letter from Clara, after asking to be forgiven for having read the letter, even though it was addressed to her brother, she is trying to calm Nathaniel down and says the following. I will confess frankly that in my opinion all the terrors and horrors you describe took place only inside your head and had very little to do with the real world outside you. Old Capellius may have been odious enough, but it was his hatred of children that bred such a loathing of him in you children. It was quite natural that your childish mind should connect a terrible Sandman in the nursery tale with old Capellius, and that even when you no longer believed in the Sandman, Capellius should seem a sinister monster, particularly hostile to children. As for his uncanny nocturnal goings-on with your father, I expect the two of them were simply conducting secret alchemical experiments, which could hardly please your mother, since a lot of money must have been squandered and, moreover, as is said always to happen to such inquirers, your father became obsessed with the delusive longing for higher wisdom and was estranged from his family. Your father must have brought about his death by his own carelessness, and Capellius cannot be to blame. 
Would you believe that yesterday I asked our neighbor, an experienced chemist, whether it was possible for such an explosion which killed people on the spot to occur in chemical experiments? He said, why, of course, and gave me a characteristically long-winded account of how this could happen, mentioning so many strange-sounding names that I couldn't remember any of them. Uh, then later other explanations follow, most of, uh, you know, most of them quite compassionate and understanding. Oh, my precious Nathaniel, don't you think that even a cheerful, relaxed, carefree temperament may have premonitions of a dark power that tries malevolently to attack our inmost selves? But please forgive a simple girl like me for venturing to suggest what I think about such inner conflicts. I probably shan't be able to put it into words properly, and you'll laugh at me, not because what I'm trying to say is stupid, but because I'm so clumsy at saying it. If there is a dark power which malevolently and treacherously places a thread within us with which to hold us and draws down a perilous and pernicious path that we would never otherwise have set foot on, if there is such a power, then it must take the same form as we do. It must become our very self, for only in this way can we believe in it and give it the scope it requires to accomplish its secret task. If our minds, strengthened by a cheerful life, are resolute enough to recognize alien and malevolent influences for what they are and to proceed tranquilly along the path to which our inclinations and our vocation have directed us, the uncanny power must surely perish in a vain struggle to assume the form which is our own reflection. Lothar also says there is no doubt that once we have surrendered ourselves to the dark psychic power, it draws alien figures encountered by chance in the outside world into our inner selves so that we ourselves give life to the spirit which our strange delusion persuades us is speaking from such figures. It is the phantom of our own self which, thanks to its intimate relationship with us and its deep influence on our minds, casts us down to hell or transports us to heaven. Uh, Freud then continues in his analysis um, to recognize that as a student uh, Nathaniel thinks he has recognized his fearful figure from his childhood in the person of Giuseppe Coppola, an itinerant Italian optician who hawks weather glasses in the university town. I don't wish to buy any barometers, my friend. Be off with you. Now, however, Coppola came right into the room, contorting his wide mouth into a hideous grin and giving a piercing look from under his long, gray lashes, he said hoarsely, No barometer, no barometer. I have beautiful eyes to sell you, beautiful eyes. You madman, cried Nathaniel in horror. How can you have eyes to sell? Eyes? But Coppola had already put his barometers aside. He reached into the wide pockets of his coat and fetched out lorgnettes and pairs of spectacles, which he placed on the table. Now, now, glass, Glass to wear on your nose. These are my eyes. Beautiful eyes. And with these words, he pulled out more and more spectacles, so that the whole table began strangely gleaming and shining. Innumerable eyes flickered and winked and goggled at Nathaniel, but he could not look away from the table, and Coppola put more and more spectacles on it, and their flaming eyes sprang to and fro ever more wildly, darting their blood-red rays into Nathaniel's breast. Overcome by mad terror, he shrieked, Stop! Stop, you frightful man! and seized Coppola by the arm, as the latter was reaching into his pocket for yet more spectacles, even though the entire table was now covered with them. 
Coppola freed himself gently, uttering a horrible, hoarse laugh, and with the words, No, oh, good for you, but here, beautiful glass. He swept up all the spectacles, packed them away, and produced from the side pocket of his coat a number of large and small spyglasses. As soon as the spectacles had been removed, Nathaniel became perfectly calm. Thinking of Clara, he realized that the hideous apparition could only have proceeded from within himself, and that Coppola must be a thoroughly honest mechanic and optician, who could not possibly be the accursed double or ghost of Capellius. Uh, he then buys a pocket spyglass from Coppola and uses it to look into the house of Professor Spallanzani on the other side of the street, where he catches sight of Olympia, the professor's beautiful but strangely silent and motionless daughter. He eventually falls in love with her and forgets all about Clara and, indeed, anybody else. Never before in his life had he come across a spyglass that brought objects before one's eyes with such clarity, sharpness, and distinctness. He involuntarily looked into Spallanzani's room. Olympia was sitting, as usual, at the little table, with her arms on it and her hands folded. Only now did Nathaniel behold Olympia's wondrously beautiful face. It was only her eyes that seemed to him strangely fixed and dead. As he peered ever more intently through the glass, however, he thought he saw moist moonbeams shining from Olympia's eyes. It was as though her power of vision were only now being awakened. Her eyes seemed to sparkle more and more vividly. Nathaniel remained at the window, as though rooted to the spot by a spell, gazing uninterruptedly at Olympia's heavenly beauty. He was aroused, like somebody lost in a dream, by the sound of foot scraping and throat clearing. Coppola was standing behind him. Trezacchini, three ducat. Nathaniel, who had completely forgotten the optician, hastily paid the sum demanded. Beautiful glass, sir, no? Beautiful glass, sir, asked Coppola in his repulsive, hoarse voice, smiling maliciously. Yes, 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 replied Nathaniel crossly. Goodbye, my friend. Coppola left the room, not without casting many strange side glances at Nathaniel, who heard him laughing loudly as he went downstairs. All right, said Nathaniel. He's laughing at me because I no doubt paid too high a price for the little spyglass. Too high a price. As he uttered these words in a low voice, a deep, deathly sigh seemed to send a grisly echo through the room. Nathaniel caught his breath with fear. But no, it was he who had uttered the sigh. That was quite obvious. Clara, he said to himself, is probably right to think me tiresome and superstitious. But it's still a funny thing. Oh, more than that, I suspect that the silly idea that I paid too high a price for Coppola's spyglass makes me feel so oddly apprehensive. I can't think why this is. He then sat down in order to finish his letter to Clara, but one glance through the window convinced him that Olympia was still sitting there, and at that instant, as though impelled by an irresistible force, he jumped up, seized Coppola's spyglass, and could not tear himself away from the alluring sight of Olympia, until his friend and fellow student Sigmund summoned him to Professor Spallanzani's lecture. Nathaniel is finally allowed to meet and dance with Olympia at the ball, um, finding sometime later that uh, Spallanzani even agrees to let him marry her. Do me a favor, old chap, said Sigmund one day, and tell me how a sensible fellow like you could be besotted with that dummy, that wax doll. Nathaniel was about to fly into a fury, but he controlled himself and replied, You tell me, Sigmund, 
How, with your sharp perceptions and your appreciation of beauty, you could fail to notice Olympias' heavenly charms. But I thank the fates that, for that reason, I don't have you as a rival, otherwise one of us would have to perish. Observing his friend's state of mind, Sigmund backed down and remarked that in love, there was no disputing about tastes. It's odd, though, he added, that many of us share the same opinion of Olympia. We thought her, don't take this amiss, old chap, strangely stiff and lacking in animation. Her figure is regular, certainly, and so is her face. She would be beautiful, but that her eyes seem to have no ray of life. They almost seem to lack the power of sight. Her gait is curiously measured, as though her every movement were produced by some mechanism like clockwork. She plays and sings with the disagreeably perfect, soulless timing of a machine, and she dances similarly. Olympia gave us a very weird feeling. We wanted nothing to do with her. We felt that she was only pretending to be a living being, and that there was something very strange about her. Nathaniel refrained from giving way to the bitterness that Sigmund's words aroused in him. He mastered his annoyance and only said, in grave tones, Olympia may well inspire a weird feeling in cold, prosaic people like you, it is only to the poetic soul that a similarly organized soul reveals itself. I was the only one to arouse her loving gaze, which radiated through my heart and mind. Only in Olympia's love do I recognize myself. People like you may complain because she doesn't engage in trivial chit-chat like other banal minds. She utters few words, certainly, but these few words are true hieroglyphs, disclosing an inner world filled with love and lofty awareness of the spiritual life led in contemplation of the everlasting beyond. But you can't appreciate any of this, and I'm wasting my words. God preserve you, my friend, said Sigmund in very gentle, almost melancholy tones, but I feel you're in a bad way. Count on me if anything. No, I'd rather not say any more. Nathaniel suddenly felt that the cold, prosaic Sigmund was truly devoted to him, and when the latter extended his hand, Nathaniel shook it very heartily. Nathaniel had entirely forgotten Clara's existence, and his former love for her, his mother, Lothar, and everyone else had vanished from his memory. He lived only for Olympia, and spent several hours with her every day, holding forth about his love, the heartfelt rapport between them, and the elective affinities linking their souls, to all of which Olympia listened with devout attention. From the darkest recesses of his desk, Nathaniel fetched everything he had ever written. Poems, fantasies, visions, novels, stories were supplemented daily by all manner of incoherent sonnets, ballads, and canzoni, which he read to Olympia for hours on end, without ever wearying. But then, he had never had such a perfect listener. She did not sew or knit, she never looked out of the window, she did not feed a cage bird, she did not play with a lapdog or a favorite cat, she did not fiddle with scraps of paper or anything else. She never needed to conceal her yawns by a slight artificial cough. In a word, she stared fixedly at her lover for hours on end, without moving a muscle, and her gaze grew ever more ardent and more animated. Only when Nathaniel finally rose and kissed her hand, and also her lips, did she say, Oh, oh, and then, Good night, my dear friend. Eventually we do find out that Olympia is an automaton for which Spallanzani has made a clockwork and in which Coppola the Sandman has set the eyes. The student comes upon the two quarrelling over their handiwork. The optician has carried off the eyeless wooden doll, the mechanic. Spallanzi picks up Olympia's bleeding eyes from the floor and throws them at Nathaniel. 
from whom he says Coppola has stolen them. Nathaniel is seized by a fresh access of madness. In his delirium the memory of his father's death is compounded with this new impression. Hurry, 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 ring of fire, ring of fire, spin around, spring around, ring of fire, quick, quick, wooden doll, hurry, lovely wooden doll, spin around. Whereupon he hurls himself at the professor, Olympia's supposed father, and tries to strangle him. Later, having recovered from a long, serious illness, Nathaniel at last seems to be cured. He finds his fiancée again and plans to marry her. One day they are out walking in the town with her brother. The tall tower of the town hall casts a huge shadow over the marketplace. Clara suggests that they go up into the tower together while her brother remains below. Nathaniel and Clara began the ascent. Their mother went home with the maidservant, and Lothar, reluctant to climb the many steps, decided to remain below. Soon afterwards, the two lovers were standing arm in arm on the highest gallery of the tower, gazing into the dim forests beyond, which the Blue Mountains rose like a giant city. Look at that funny little grey bush, which really seems to be walking towards us, said Clara. Nathaniel reached mechanically into his side pocket. He found Coppola's spyglass. He looked sideways. Clara was standing before the glass. A convulsion ran through his every vein. He stared at Clara in deathly pallor, but an instant later rivers of fire were glowing and sparkling in his rolling eyes, and he uttered a horrible bellow like a tormented animal, and he sprang aloft and cried in a piercing voice interspersed with hideous laughter. Spin, wooden dolly! Spin, wooden dolly! And with superhuman strength, he seized Clara and was about to dash her to the ground below, but Clara clung firmly to the parapet in the desperation born of terror. Lothar heard the madman raving. He heard Clara's shriek of fright. A horrible suspicion shot through his mind. He rushed up the stairs. The door leading to the second flight of stairs was locked. Clara's shrieks grew louder. Beside himself with fury and fear, he hurled himself against the door, which flew open. Clara's cries were growing fainter and fainter. Help! Save me! Save me! She moaned, her voice dying away. She's dead! The madman has murdered her! Shrieked Lothar. The door leading to the gallery was locked as well. Desperation endowed him with prodigious strength. He pushed the door off its hinges. God in heaven! Clara, in the grip of the frenzied Nathaniel, was suspended in the air over the edge of the gallery. Only one hand still clung to its iron railings. With lightning speed, Lothar seized his sister, pulled her to safety, and dashed his fist in the madman's face, forcing the latter to reel back and relinquish his intended victim. Lothar rushed downstairs, his sister unconscious in his arms. She was saved. Meanwhile, Nathaniel was raving in the gallery, leaping into the air and shrieking, Fiery circle spin! Fiery circle spin! People gathered below, attracted by his wild yells. In their midst loomed the gigantic figure of the advocate Capellius, who had just arrived in the town and made directly for the marketplace. As people began to climb the stairs in order to seize the lunatic, Capellius laughed and said, Ha ha ha! Just wait, he'll soon come down by himself, and looked up like the others. Suddenly, Nathaniel paused 
and stood stock still. He bent down, perceived Capellius, and with a piercing shriek of, Beautiful eyes! Beautiful eyes! He jumped over the parapet. By the time Nathaniel was lying on the pavement, his head shattered, Capellius had vanished into the throng. It is reported that several years later, in a distant part of the country, Clara was seen sitting hand in hand with an affectionate husband outside the door of a handsome country dwelling, with two merry boys playing in front of her. This would seem to suggest that Clara succeeded in finding the quiet domestic happiness which suited her cheerful, sunny disposition, and which she could never have enjoyed with the tormented, self-divided Nathaniel. So ends the story of the Sandman. Freud tells us that this brief summary will probably make it clear beyond doubt that in Hoffman's tale the sense of the uncanny attaches directly to the figure of the Sandman, and therefore to the idea of being robbed of one's eyes, and that intellectual uncertainty, as Gentz understands it, has nothing to do with its effect. Uncertainty as to whether an object is animate or inanimate, which we were bound to acknowledge in the case of the doll Olympia, is quite irrelevant in the case of this more potent example of the uncanny. It is true that the author initially creates a kind of uncertainty by preventing us, certainly not unintentionally, from guessing whether he is going to take us into the real world or into some fantastic world of his own choosing. End of quote. I was personally drawn in by the story, <laughs> maybe I'm stupid, so I did feel that it was Olympia which was the source of the uncanny. But then I examined the incident when I first realized something fishy was going on, namely the interaction with Sigismund, and then it became clear that it is not Olympia who is spooky, it is Nathaniel's own conviction that this is a real source of love for him, which is unheimlich. Moreover. Examining that conviction further, I came to the conclusion that it was the Sandman Coppelius who had begun to construct that conviction long before Olympia was born, exploiting the trauma of the father's gruesome passing in an alchemical golem experiment. Freud says further, After all, the conclusion of the tale makes it clear that the optician Coppola really is the lawyer Coppelius, and so also the Sandman. There is no longer any question of intellectual uncertainty. We know now that what we are presented with are not the figments of a madman's imagination, behind which we, with our superior rationality, can recognize the sober truth. Yet this clear knowledge in no way diminishes the impression of the uncanny. The notion of intellectual uncertainty in no way helps us to understand this uncanny effect. On the other hand, psychoanalytic experience reminds us that some children have a terrible fear of damaging or losing their eyes. Many retain this anxiety into adult life and fear no physical injury so much as one to the eye. And there is a common saying that one will guard something like the apple of one's eye. The study of dreams, fantasies and myths has taught us also that anxiety about one's eyes the fear of going blind is quite often a substitute for the fear of castration. When the mythical criminal Oedipus blinds himself, this is merely a mitigated form of the penalty of castration. 
the only one that befits him according to the Lex Talo Talionis. Taking up a rationalistic stance, one may seek to reject the idea that the fear of damaging the eyes can be traced back to the fear of castration. One finds it understandable that so precious an organ as the eye should be guarded by a commensurate anxiety. Indeed, one can go further and claim that no deeper mystery and no other significance lie behind the fear of castration. End of quote. Of course, Freud's theories about castration are at first difficult to accept. One feels spontaneously, what's the point <laughs> of always bringing it back to the phallus? And that is true, but it is also true of the unacceptance itself. If, when we hear the word castration, we always think of an erect penis or an aroused clitoris. What if we instead see it as Lacan does, as a symbolic castration? The castration is that which puts an end to reproduction. But what kind of reproduction? The reproduction of, for example, the eyes is the observed world. Nobody wants to have that taken from them. And I think what we fear most in blindness is a kind of death before death. I often recall concerning the fragility of my eyes the scene in Slumdog Millionaire when that pimp uh, blinds one of the young boys to become a be better beggar. Um, and before I had seen that film, I feared when I was really young, ever since I'd seen Robin Hood when I was maybe nine or ten, with uh, the legendary Kevin Costner. <laughs> uh, you might remember the scene when he returns home to find his father's castle burned down and the uh, now blind servant therein. Father? Father? Anyone here? Duncan! Duncan, my father. Oh, it's a miracle. Why? Why didn't you cut him down? It's a miracle. I never thought to hear you. Duncan, are you deaf? Easy. Look at him. I would have done if I could see. Who did this to you, Duncan? Guy. Guy of Gisborne. With the sheriff and his witch looking on. Why? When you say that the sheriff captured your father, worshipping the devil, that he signed a confession before the bishop. No, that's not possible. Nottingham declared all Loxley lands forfeit. Did you believe the charges? Not even when they took my eyes. <laughs> Freud continues, quote, Moreover, 
I would not advise any opponent of the psychoanalytic view to appeal to Hoffman's story of the Sandman in support of the contentition that fear for the eyes is something independent of the castration complex. For why is this fear for the eyes so closely linked here with the death of the father? Why does the Sandman always appear as a disruptor of love? He estranges the unfortunate student from his fiancée and from her brother, his best friend. He destroys the second object of his love, the beautiful doll Olympia, and even drives him to suicide just when he has won back his fiancée, and the two are about to be happily united. These and many other features of the tale appear arbitrary and meaningless, if one rejects the relation between fear for the eyes and fear of castration, but they become meaningful as soon as the Sandman is replaced by the dreaded father, at whose hands castration is expected. End of quote. In my concluding remarks, then, to bring this back to capitalism, because I could, as you can tell, go on and on, <laughs> it is not so much the robot itself which should terrify us, Remember, Marx thus praised the ingenuity of capitalism, and only an industrial capacity of production can bring an evergreen reassurance to the proletariat of being well-fed, well-clothed, and housed to feel thoroughly at home in this world. No, it is not Frankenstein's monster which is unheimlich, but Frankenstein himself. Maybe that is why we so often slip and simply say Frankenstein when we want to speak out the true monstrosity of something. This is the return of the repressed. All the hallows eve is upon us. Welcome to the very first Q&A. I am Marcus, your host. If you ever wondered why you are frightened, why there is a spectre at the corner of your room whispering to you, maybe at some point in your life, you felt that there was something more to the uncanny sensation. And then perhaps you were misled by the likes of Jung or Steiner, or you got into magic and thought that Thelema, or astral projection, would help you and relieve you of your itch, your uneasiness. But realize that all that profound sophistry of the aristocracy and their bourgeois hangabout ever did was to make it worse. Then I am here for you. Sigmund Freud, 100 years ago, in the old capital of spookiness of Vienna, is here for you. We do not want to take something away from you. We do not wish to make you into a more rational being. The aim of psychoanalysis, though the ethical crimes in its name have been more than can be counted, is simply this, as Lacan once said, to make things less confusing.
Hey, Marcus. I gotta say, I'm a huge fan of the show. I love learning, and I love learning from your show. Because I love information-dense shows. It's been very fun to see your show develop. Anyway, so I have a question for you, or maybe two if you'll allow me. Like many Americans, maybe a decade ago, maybe longer, I found myself aware of moody, atmospheric, Nordic noir. So first I want to ask if you have any favorites or deep cuts or recommendations for the real shit, or if you don't like it, I want to hear about that too. Second, I wanted to ask your thoughts about Stieg Larsson. On the one hand, he seems pretty based, because he was a communist, he trained some guerrilla fighters in mortar. In his first book, Extreme Hogan, it was about the far right, and then, you know, Larson kind of like infiltrated those themes into popular culture through his well-known crime fiction series. On the other hand, I could imagine there's some pitfalls there with some of the prurient and almost like wish fulfillment elements to those novels. So love him or hate him, I want to know your thoughts. Again, congratulations with the show. I'm a huge fan. Hello, Jimmy. Thank you very much for that message, for that um, for that question, those questions. Um, yeah, I mean, Stieg Larsson is definitely uh, a hero of parapolitical research. He um, he was the first to sort of start uh, a newspaper, and before even he started his own newspaper, when he was working at the old TAT, um, he uh, brought uh, the entire like uh, Swedish intelligentsia's uh, attention to the fact that you know Nazism is not a passé thing. Um, I think eventually even the secret or the security police made use of his early research to sort of make a rudimentary map. His map is not rudimentary, uh, it's a huge archive. But um, yeah, they made a rudimentary map based on his research. I uh, obviously I, I, I read at least one book, I saw all the films. Uh, I was already aware that he. Um, of Expo, his second paper, but I never really got into it properly until maybe about three years ago. And uh, in our like Palme series, I made heavy use of his uh, archives with the help of um, another author who, who, who was granted access to it, uh, Stocklasa. And um, he also made recently a, another documentary about uh, Stieg Larsson's life, which I, I watched. It wasn't, I mean, it's about his uh, life as well and the, you know, the, the progress and the development of uh, Expo, the research newspaper and how he trained, you know, younger researchers, like he was in his 40s when they started it. Uh, he was like already an old fox by then. And uh, he had also worked with a, um, uh, a famous British research paper that I'm sure some of my English listeners know more about, which is Searchlight. And uh, Expo was made to be a Swedish version of uh, Searchlight. And, and, and doing research for that uh, you know, newspaper, he would infiltrate uh, right-wing, extreme right-wing, that's, that's the name of the title that you try to pronounce, Extreme Högen, which means, yeah, the extreme right. He would infiltrate them and, you know, really put his life sort of on there. He was constantly, you know, threatened 
somebody even sent bullets to him in, in a paper one time and there's a lot of messages recorded where they threaten his life uh, and so he would always write under the pseudonym our Swedish correspondent in, in Searchlight for example uh, later, two of those people whom he trained in research, uh, I mean, he, he didn't only train them like how to do research, but also how to be a researcher in the sense of like how to open mails if they're going to be, you know, mail bombs. And um, at one point, actually, two of them were targeted by a, a, um, a, uh, a car bomb. And uh, it was the husband, they were a couple and they had a kid and the kid and the husband were in the car. And uh, he broke his back uh, due to the power of the bomb in two places, like his spine was broken. He did survive, the kids survived. They, however, chose to leave the newspaper for obvious reason. And uh, that was sort of like, in one sense, became a problem because Stieg felt betrayed. Uh, you know, he was a very serious person and like, you know, having put his life on the line for much longer uh, than, you know, some of his colleagues, he, he you know, they they loved him and he loved them but he treated them you know maybe not in the fairest way you know he had a very fixed idea of like you know dedicating 100 percent of his life to to researching uh, fascist elements and um, uh, but at the same time when these target you know the other news big newspapers of sweden sort of realized that this was a threat to like journalism as such right so they did get a lot of clout after this and uh, you know the paper rose in popularity, kind of strife and effect, I guess. But yeah, in some way. And um, uh, yeah, for example, they 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 really did map like how the. I'm gonna read a few like early articles, but I'll just say like you know, in summary, that uh, they really did map the development of the uh, neo-Nazis. Uh, especially during the 90s, they showed, you know, how they got their money, um, which was um, through uh, the release or the publishing of, uh, you know, white power, uh, white supremacy music, uh, which was relabeled by a, a, an infamous entrepreneur in Sweden, um, who ironically became a sort of, you know, uh, a hindrance to the contemporary Nazi party. They they sort of battled with them in the 90s because this entrepreneur was very famous has always been very famous in sweden right like he's a publisher of music and i think books and stuff like he's a despicable person uh, he looks disgusting and he is disgusting and he said like a troll and so he started like this kind of troll party which was like just a right-wing populist party that got really popular called new democracy and uh, it was uh, you know they were pushing for leaving uh, the european union and he, on, he had a his sidekick was a man called Wachtmeister, which is a famous uh, aristocracy. So they obviously they had a lot of money. He is also a rich entrepreneur, so you know they could sort of make it onto the scene uh, as the as a right wing populist party. Which obviously then during this time the contemporary Nazi party, who are now in power, um, they uh, hadn't you know fully made the transition yet to a sort of you know, more populist right-wing party, like they were still very much associated with like skinheads and stuff. So, so they, uh, their progress was sort of stunted by this uh, development of new democracy. And, and the irony is, is that it was uh, this entrepreneur who signed the first um, white power band and re, 
uh, sort of rebranded it as, as uh, Viking Rock and you know made sure that they said national music rather than nationalist music and things like that and it, and it became you know they, they be, like you know from having had you know maybe a couple of hundred uh, you know neo-nazi supporters they were like everywhere and they became really popular uh, the band is called Ultima Thule maybe some uh, have heard about it and he signed them and that is how sort of um, it was like the lifeline that made sure that like you know uh, the neo-nazi movement could develop during the 90s and so yeah there's, there's something interesting there and he covers that a lot but I'll read one uh, article from the first edition from Expo in 1999 where Stieg Larsson is predicting I mean almost uncannily uh, everything that's going to happen and where we he basically foresees where we are right now today uh, 24 years ago All right, Expo uh, number one, 1999. Quote, in 1979, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, that is Marie Le Pen's father, right, received 0.7% uh, of the vote in the French elections. At that time, 20 years ago, Le Pen was perceived as one of many semi-proud sec sectarians on the fringes of politics. He had spent most of his political career in parties that were by and large no bigger or more significant than our Swedish Democrats, or Sweden Democrats. No one suggested the preposterous idea that a basement politician like Le Pen would ever succeed. A lot has happened since then. The far right, the very parties that 20 years ago were considered insignificant, largely dominated the political scene in their respective countries. Today, Le Pen regularly gets around 15% in elections, and I'll add, Marcus here, in uh, 2000. 22, before Marie, the daughter of uh, Jean-Marie, uh, stepped aside for Jordan Bardella, um, RAS, uh, what they call now again, uh, Rassemblement National, or Front National, got 23.15%, um, which is crazy. It's also crazy that you name your daughter Marie when your name is Jean-Marie. It's like the most audible thing I've ever heard. But uh, yeah. Uh, Larsson goes on, the extreme right in Italy, which in the 1970s had just over 5% of the vote, got 48% in the 1995 election. And I'll add again, uh, in 2022, in a record low voter turnout snap election, Meloni's party became the largest in parliament with 26% of the vote. And this is the Fratelli d'Italia, uh, Fratelli, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, Brothers of Italy. Again, which is a funny name, since it is, you know, led by a woman, uh, which I think strengthens my thesis that if you want a successful patriarchal ideology, you need a female mouthpiece. Uh, Larsen goes on. In Austria, Jörg Haider's FPÖ got 28% in the last election. A few weeks ago, he got 44% in the state of Carinthia, where he was able to form a government. And I'll add again, in the last election, another snap election, Freiheitliche Partei Österreich, uh, the FPÖ, dropped down to 16.2% uh, after the Ibiza scandal, when the party leader was uh, you know, filmed offering Austrian industrial contracts in return for media backing from a Russian right-wing oligarch. Well, the, the person posed as a Russian right-wing oligarch. I think it was some uh, journal investigative journalist who just faked it. Uh, faking being an oligarch, the... the uh, the situation isn't fake. 
uh, the Spiegel report about this. I don't know too much, but yeah, you can read about that. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll just note further that this party, the FPÖ, was founded by an SS Brigadeführer, and still somehow its international affiliation is that of the Oxford-based Liberal International. So, you know, it, it doesn't even align itself with the, with the right wing. Uh, there are a lot of like European, you know, international federations of the specific parties in each country. And there are different, you know, right wing uh, organizations um, or like these umbrella organizations. <laughs> but the uh, party in Austria, of all places, founded by an SS Brigadeerführer right after the war, uh, is a proud member of the Liberal International. That's interesting. Now, what the, so Larsen goes on. What the, the Front National and Le Pen mean in practice in the places where they have come to power is beyond doubt. In France, there is a plethora of books and analysis available. In Sweden, there is a smaller selection. But Bim Klinell, uh, Paris correspondent for Swedish radio, has just published the book The, the Hunsa des Uppror, which I guess means like the... Uh, the cucks, <laughs> the, the uprising of the cucked, I guess, which examines the French extreme right in detail. Um, Bim is well acquainted with the details. She has followed the Front National closely for 10 years and describes how the party has infiltrated established society and gradually forced concessions that have shaped developments. Her book should be a basic course for all politicians. Sweden has not yet experienced this kind of right-wing growth. But the party that currently dominates the extreme right is the Sweden Democrats. The party is closely linked to the Front National, which in the last election paid for most of SDS, that is Swedish Democrat, uh, election propaganda. This resulted in 20,000 votes and eight municipal seats. SD is now Sweden's third largest party outside the parliament and is hoping for a breakthrough in the EU elections. SDR is a small party, but ignoring them, as Le Pen was dismissed in France, is a mistake. The Sweden Democrats have been schooled in Le Pen's schoolyard and have dramatically changed their profile in recent years. It is no longer a party for drunken skinheads on the streets. They are making every effort to present themselves as a, in their own words, national center party with an ecological approach. <laughs> End of quote. In their election program for the EU elections, they borrow slogans from both the right and the left. Today, SD is more liberal than the People's Party, more um, than the Social Democrats, and more environmentally friendly than the Green Party. They demand greater municipal autonomy, better conditions for pensioners, and more resources for schools and healthcare. This is a party that is as false as water, and is becoming a master in the art of pretending to have no links to anti-Semitic and, anti oh, and neo-Nazi groups. This is why Expo produced the information booklet on SD and Euronet. Read it. Stieg Larsson, Expo, 1999. Alright, so that's, you know. I have another later um, article, you know, just to bring, like I tried to bring it up to speed, right, with some uh, statistic, statistics of some of the Swedish, uh, sorry, European parties and where they stand today and, uh, you know, that his... Um, uh, his foresightedness was uh, very accurate, and uh, here's a summary of like you know where does things stand today in Sweden, and so on Expo they have a um, sort of um, pasted or um, 
pinned article, which was originally based on obviously Stieg's research, but which uh, is continuously updated. And the last update was 20, uh, 2022, uh, September 23rd, right? And so this is about uh, who they are, like the, the Sweden Democrats, right? Sverigedemokraterna, abbreviated uh, SD, you know, which is funny, though abbreviations can always be funny, since uh, that was the letter insignia of the intelligence agency of the SS, the Sicherheitsdienst. Um, I'm sure they have uh, made more than one joke about this in private. Anyway, uh, yeah, Larsen or Expo uh, writes the following. Nationali uh, Sverigedemokraterna, SD, is a nationalist parliamentary party formed in 1988 founded by veterans of Swedish Nazism and fascism, SD has succeeded in becoming the broad pragmatic alternative to Swedish uh, radical nationalism. The Sweden Democrats were formed in 1988 by veterans of militant racism and fascism. Their background include the Nordic Reich Party, the NRP, Bevara Sveriges Svensk, uh, Keep Sweden Swedish, BSS, uh, the um, uh, Framstegspartiet, that is uh, the Advancement Party and uh, uh, Sweden Party. One of the older founders had been a volunteer in the Third Reich's uh, elite Waffen SS army during the Second World War. Anders Klarström, with a background in the NRP, that is uh, again Nordic Reich Party, became the first SD party leader. The party's symbol until 2006 was a burning torch in the colors of the flag an accepted fascist image. Uh, my British listeners will know that it is because I'm pretty sure it's the exact or, you know, replica of the uh, the old uh, British fascist party's uh, symbol. Um, in 1992, the SDS First Youth Association, uh, Sweden Democrats uh, Youth, SDU, was formed with the Nazi Robert Westerlund as a chairman. SDU became a kind of nursery for young Swedish Nazis. Uh, okay, under the next uh, subtitle, uh, subchapter, uh, competition, for, um, competition from New Democracy, this is what I was talking about earlier, the party hoped to make its big, uh, the party hoped to make its big breakthrough in 1994 elections. But there was no electoral success, competition from the populist New Democracy uh, party was still too tough. There were 14,000 votes in the parliamentary elections and five Sweden Democrats were elected to municipalities. Critics within the party felt that the failure of the election was due to the fact that the Sweden Democrats were too closely and clearly associated with Nazis. Anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, skinheads, riots and hand grenades were what the party had hitherto there to been associated with. In 1994 it was still common for participants to give Hitler salutes at SD rallies. It was during this time that future party leader Jimmy Åkesson approached the party, deciding on New Year's Eve 1994 to become politically active in its youth wing. Åkesson's official version is different, according to it he only joined when SD changed party leaders the following year, and what attracted him to the Swedish Democrats was the party's opposition to the EU. Whatever. Uh, another sub-chapter, change of party leader. In March 1995, Mikael Jansson, with no previous links to fascism, was elected party leader. Under Jansson, a determined effort was made to make the party outwardly clean. 
A uniform ban was introduced. SDU, the, that's the youth organization, was disbanded in 1996 and reformed in 1998. During this period, two breakaway parties emerged from SD. One is the Hembygdspartiet in 1995. I guess that could be translated as the Hamlet party or something. And uh, national, na the National Democrats in 2001. However, SDA continued to both house and fraternize with Nazis, both inside and outside Sweden. On November 30, 1997, leading Sweden Democrats gathered at Riddarholm Church together with activists from the National Socialist Front and others to pay tribute to Charles XII, Karl XII. In 1998, this was a very famous uh, uh, demonstration. You can uh, look it up on YouTube, you'll see like maybe there's some with English subtitles. A lot of things happened that night. In 1998, the SD entered the election with financial support from Holocaust denier Jean-Marie Le Pen's French far-right party Front National. The French support allowed SD to print 200,000 copies of a 24-page election leaflet that was distributed to households all across Sweden. The leaflet presented SD as a nationalist democratic center party, and its leader Mikael Jansson was seen shaking hands with Le Pen. The SD made progress in the election, gaining almost 20,000 votes. This was enough for eight municipal seats. Alright, next subchapter, in cooperation with fascists. Prior to the 1999 EU parliamentary elections, it was revealed that SD had been part of the European collaboration known as Euronet. The network was a collection of various far-right fascists and anti-Jewish parties. Among the participating parties were the French uh, Front National again and the Italian fascist party Movimento Sociale, Fiamma Tricolore, uh, the MSFT, later to become, as you know, the Italian Brothers mentioned above. For SD, the revealed cooperation was a liability in the run-up to the EU elections. The party solved the problem by letting the youth union, SDU, take over the membership. In 2000, Åkesson became the leader of SDU, and in 2005 he took power in the party. As a party leader, he intensified the party's modernization. In 2006, the party chose a new symbol, the cornflower. However, the Nazi scandals continued year after year. In 2008, it was revealed that six SD representatives had supported the Nazi movement in various ways over the previous two years. These included Karin Svensson, who deposited money in the account of the National Socialist Front, Jan Kassberg, who on two occasions paid money to Info14, which was a uh, yeah, Nazi, militant Nazi pamphlet, and the Sweden Democrats' uh, deputy in Gothenburg, and Göran Lagroth, who on 21 occasions paid money to the Swedish resistant movement the SMR, later known as the Nordic Resistant Movement. This is probably one of the most famous Aryan uh, supremacist uh, groups in Sweden. The following year it was uh, revealed that leading Sweden Democrats on a boat trip to Estonia, organized by SDU, had sung along to Nazi white power music and made racist jokes. Alright, next subchapter. Zero tolerance on empty promise. In 2010, SD entered the Swedish parliament with 5.7% of the vote. The following year, a women's union was formed within the party with Karina Herstedt as its first chairperson. 
In 2012, Aukesson proclaimed a zero tolerance for racism within the party, but this turned out to be an empty promise. The policy has occasionally been applied to disgruntled members and opponents of the party leadership, but never to its protégés. At the same time, the Sweden Democrats' claim of uh, zero tolerance and attempt to become an accepted partner in the parliament have raised bad blood amongst parts of the far right, who see the party as a traitor. The staunch Nazis even believe that the party is part of the Jewish power, and therefore consistently refer to the party as Zionists. In the 2014 elections, SD received 12.86% of the vote and became the third largest party in the parliament. In spring 2015, the SDU Youth Association uh, was expelled after a conflict with the SD party leadership. And you remember, though they are still connected to uh, the European international fascist uh, movement. The pretext was, I, I'm pretty sure that they still were, and this is what the dispute was about, but I don't know for sure. The pretext was the contacts uh, the SDU uh, leadership had with neo-fascist actors. Ah, okay, yeah. SDAU declared itself independent while the Sweden Democrats formed a new youth association, Ung Svenskarna, which is yeah, Young Swedes, in 2015. Alright, uh, there's some stuff about uh, Islamophobia, immigration, increase in every election. I think uh, this is all... Uh, uh, you can guess <laughs> what kind of stance they have in these things. And... Um, uh, international cooperation is interesting. Um, in addition to its historical cooperation with the Nas uh, Front National and with various far-right and fascist parties within the framework of Euronat, the SDA was until 2018 part of the European Party Alliance for Direct Democracy in Europe, ADDE, in the European Parliament, together with right-wing populist and anti-immigration parties such as the German Alternative für Deutschland and the British United Kingdom Independence Party, UKIP, in 2018, the Sweden Democrats changed their party group to the European Conservatives and Reformists, ECR. Very clever. Uh, this is where all the big and old school, like moderate and conservative parties are, you know, who likes monarchy and, you know, just doesn't want to have too many subsidies, right? <laughs> That's how they are generally seen. This uh, group is the third largest in the Union and includes the SD along with Polish Law and Justice, which is, I mean, they're a bit more than just monarchists. Uh, you know, the right-wing populist uh, Spanish party Vox and the far-right Italian Brothers. Oh, sorry, maybe I will, yeah. Uh, it seems like they do have quite a lot of the fascists involved as well. For, yeah, this is again the formerly Movimiento uh, Sociale Fiamma Tricolore. In the past, SD has also developed friendly contacts with the Danish People's Party. In the fall of 2017, it entered into Nordic cooperation with the True Finns and the Danish People's Party. Alright, this one is pretty interesting. Scandals and controversies. The SDS history is marked by scandals and controversies that have followed each other almost continuously. One of the most serious is May 1, 1993, when three skinheads were arrested with a live hand grenade in the audience of a May Day speech by Gudrun Schyman. She was the leader of the left party. Among the three were Robert Westlund, chairman of the Sweden Democrats Youth Association, and Niklas Irberger, a former board member of the SD. Estea. Irberger was sentenced to one year's imprisonment for preparation of public destruction, which I think that's insane that he only got the public destruction. It could have been mass murder if he actually did something, right? So it should be preparation for mass murder or something. 
Anyway, another embarrassing event for the SD was when it was revealed in 1996 that the Sweden Democrat Tina Hallgren Bengtsson, who had previously been the party's vice president for three years, attended a meeting organized by the National Socialist Front, the NSF, wearing a full Nazi uniform. Yes! <laughs> it's so good when they do that. <laughs> they should just always wear the uniform so we know they <laughs> who they are. She later joined the NSF and was warmly thanked by SD's internal party magazine. Of course. <laughs> One of the SD's most high-profile scandals was the so-called Iron Pipe scandal. I remember when this happened. When three party leaders, Erik Almqvist, economic policy spokesperson, Kent Ekerot, legal policy, legal policy spokesperson, and Christian Westling of the SD's Foreign Policy Council were relieved, revealed to have argued hurled racist and sexist insults and armed themselves with utensils during a night on the streets of Stockholm in 2010. A drunk night. And uh, afterwards lied to the media and denied all the essential elements of the incident, even though they have filmed it themselves, <laughs> if I remember correctly. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, Alright, here's some quotes and this is the end of the article. I hope you liked it and that, you know, this wasn't tedious or anything. Um, in their own words, right? Quote, I believe that many Swedes should also be subjected to assimilation policies. Swedes need to regain their own identity and pride in being Swedish. There is an unholy alliance between liberals and Marxists, with liberals believing that consumerism and capitalism are more important than national identity, and Marxists believing that national identity stands in the way of class identity, class struggle and working class rebellion against the bourgeoisie. They are united in a common contempt for national identity. End of quote. So this was Jimmy Åkesson, party leader, interviewed in Dagens Samhälle, February 20, 2013. And he said again, quote, As a Sweden Democrat, I see the growing Muslim minority as our greatest foreign threat since World War II. End of quote. He said this in 2009, uh, quote, Rape is an, uh, this is the next quote, quote, Rape is an expression of Islamic culture. End of quote. This was said by Richard Jumshoff, a former legal policy spokesperson and later partner secretary. Uh, he said that in 2014 in a small local paper. Next quote. Uh, Islam does not belong in Western society. Islam does not belong in Sweden. That is the simple and naked truth in my opinion. Uh, this was said by Tor Alf Alfson. <laughs> Stupid name. <laughs> A uh, former member of parliament, SD, uh, on his personal blog in 2009. Quote, the Arabs are driven by a hatred and desire for death. <laughs> End of quote. Kent Ekerot, one of the dudes from the Iron Pipe scandal, member of parliament, personal blog 2009. Quote, let the Arabs get paid for raping feminists and they will do some good. End of quote. Marcus Palmheim, a former municipal council member in Danderyd. For SD, uh, in one of the right-wing newspapers 2016. Quote, can no one stand on the Öresund bridge with a machine gun? Exclamation mark, end of quote. Uh, Öresund bridge is the bridge that connects uh, Sweden with Denmark. Gunilla Schmidt said this, former municipal councillor in Åstorp, a small commune uh, for SD and member of the board on asylum seekers at Sweden's southern border. Yeah, that's what she was talking about, uh, 2015. All right. Uh, yeah, very depressing stuff and uh, it's happening everywhere. 
I don't know what to say <laughs> about this other than that you know yeah, great work uh, by Expo to sort of highlight these things because it's already forgotten right like people seem to think now that the Sweden Democrats are a clean party and it's just like why do you believe them you know <laughs> why the the NSDAP did the exact same thing you know all fascist party uh, parties do the same thing and it's interesting of course with the French connections you know that they taught a lot of the other European countries how to do this or reminding them how to do this now your second topic it was actually your first topic your first question was about Nordic Noir suggestions um, which is more fun uh, to talk about and uh, yeah since I was a personal assistant uh, to a guy who really did like to watch um, Nordic Noir you know in the evenings uh, when we came home he, he usually liked to be like out all day except when we came home uh, in the evening and then he loved to watch Nordic Noir so we would do that a lot um, of course like the big ones I have seen those The Bridge uh, and uh, The Crime Febrytelsen and uh, Brun they're good uh, but maybe the, I think you've seen those already uh, there's one really good I think it's on Netflix called The Caliphate um, it's about uh, ISIS and like Swedish volunteers to ISIS it's pretty like I, th I thought it was pretty well made and, like I saw that it good like got good reviews from uh, uh, you know a lot of different kinds of people so of course it's like you know on the state channel there's gonna be you know some things that aren't you know completely accurate or you know the one I don't really know to be honest what statements should be made about this I haven't you know gotten into it too much but uh, I thought it was pretty good and uh, it's with English subtitles so you know watch that one and um, I really want to see uh, Trom I don't know if that is how it's pronounced uh, uh, it's from the Faroe Islands Faroeana it's uh, you know that's a small island group sort of Mac in the middle of Iceland, Norway, and Scotland. Uh, pretty cool place. I don't know, like, I think there are about like 30,000 people who live there, maybe more, 50,000. They have their own, like, language, which is similar to Danish, but probably more, um, you know, that maybe not even Danish people can understand them, which is insane. Uh, I think Irish monks went there, um, you know, like as early as the 1800s. Uh, no, sorry, not the 1800s, the 800, like the eight. Uh, century uh, you know like hermits and they just had those islands as like you know big hermit sites which is also so freaking cool they have some really strange birds over there with like colorful beaks I guess they look like arctic uh, parrots um, so yeah that one I would say you know I haven't seen it myself but I'm looking forward to watch it uh, I also like uh, Norwegian uh, noir um, maybe the most like the Swedish and the Danish it's like sort of well known by now obviously the, the Faroe Islands very unknown Iceland is starting making some as well but uh, yeah the Norwegian there's one st really stupid Norwegian one called um, the foreigners uh, it's, it's still funny like the thing is it's not meant to be I think like I don't really know what they thought this show would be uh, so he's got like you know the Nordic Noir overtone like it's very dark not many colors very serious, you know, made in the same fashion as all the others. But the plot is basically that the Beforeners uh, are people who, through some sort of time portal in, in, in the harbor outside Oslo, um, you know, Norwegians from, from other times in Norway's history are, you know, sort of reappearing uh, in, in present day. 
and there has been you know eventually a, a corpse is found uh, from one of these like it's it's a well known thing you know like we you're put into the story where you know Norway is sort of adjusting to this uh, uh, problem or this uh, development of the foreigners you know that immigrants are coming from Norway uh, to Norway from different times and uh, eventually you we start to find out that like maybe the person who is behind this is uh, a caveman who is now like a sort of like gang leader <laughs> and he's living like in this big like uh, uh, scarface mansion but he is walking around naked and eating birds like that he catches with stones <laughs> <laughs> and he's eating them raw and he's got like a like a bimbo wife who's like really into the sexy masculinity of this caveman <laughs> it's so stupid <laughs> but yeah <laughs> yeah you should you should watch that one I'm, I'm it might be also with the English subtitles otherwise like all of them have subtitles on uh, OpenSubtitles.com, right? And now you can sort of, you know, it's easy. There are many AI translation tools, and they do a good job, like of Swedish and Danish uh, or Norwegian to uh, to English. So <laughs> you can watch it. Uh, there is one like on a more serious. There's one more serious, really good one. Um, uh, acquitted, Frishend, uh gives really like beautiful scenery, like in Norway. Uh, it's a small town. Which like I mean the, yeah the, the snow walls are like three meters in the winter, uh, and so we're, like when the cars are driving like on the plowed up uh, streets, you know there's like just walls like around the um, three meter tall or something, <laughs> and it's cool. It's like it's got family intrigues and there's some like incest uh, scandal that's being like covered up. It's only two seasons and uh, uh, the last few episodes of the second season. And the last few episodes of the first season both have like a lot of unexpected turns and uh yeah i mean it's it's an it's a regular noir so like uh yeah you, you'll recognize what it's about now you also asked like what's the real shit and to me the real shit like the stuff that you know started this whole thing uh was back in the 90s so i watched this you know uh on like vhs and and, and dvd uh, or on the TV when they would like have reruns or sometimes I would catch like the first airing of it as well and I'm talking about the the Beck films uh, they get terrible rating on IMD but IMDB is bullshit like they don't know what they're talking about this show is awesome What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You have to go a little bit. You can see that it's hard to go. What is it that happened? I tramped snett. När hände det? 21.30 igår kväll. Sen dess har jag suttit på den där jävla akutmottagningen! Satan! Det är skrikande psykfall, mosade jävla fyllon och uppskurna pundare. Och fan har hans moster! Varenda jävel ska ha förtur! Före mig! Vad är för jävla sjukvårdssystem? Yeah, what, you know, what I think like the Nordic Noir of today is missing is of course like the 90s nostalgia, right? Like some of them try to to be in uh, the 90s, um, you know, but it's not as true as Nordic Noir made in the 90s, obviously. And so there's a lot of like, yeah, it's the first ones are the best, I think. Well, it's like Peter Haber is an actor. There were like a few made there. I think there's even one made like in the 70s. 
and then there's a few more made and then I think which one is the first I have to check um, Beck Martin Haber Filmatiseringar uh, uh, uh. Martin Beck uh, wow the first one is from 67 actually but uh, yeah I've never seen like any of those the first ones uh, the first one which is with um, with Haber Peter Haber is uh, Lockpoiken from 97 uh, I don't remember that one but the second one I do remember, it's called The Man with the Icons. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of like, uh, you know, Eastern European vibes, like very often the criminals are from East Europe, like Russians and stuff. And I remember this one is like that. Um, uh, yeah, has a bleak background of like uh, wife beatings and uh, grave plundering and smuggling. The second one I remember as well from 98 is called White Nights. Again, uh, it's about like the rave party culture when it comes to Sweden. Uh, a little bit later, you know, than England. Uh, sh shout out to Matt's uh, great uh, episode about uh, the parapolities of Britpop. And obviously we had like some similar uh, movement in Sweden. And uh, yeah, of course the amphetamine is coming from Eastern Europe, right? And they're being smuggled into the country like with uh, poor Romas who have like, it's operated into their body, I guess. And somebody dies of a overdose if I remember correctly and uh, that's how that uh, episode that film begins yeah there's a lot of good ones uh, Pensionate Perlan is good um, there are some also from the early 2000s which is good I remember one called like uh, the boy in the uh, glass ball pojken in glass kulan uh, early 2000 is what when they start to become popular so there's like you know a lot of releases there's like three films coming out every year and uh, I mean, yeah, maybe they're a little bit less thought through and a little bit more like, you know, they're more conscious of what they're selling, like Nordic Noir is becoming a thing. So, you know, there's a lot of hits and miss and a lot of repetition, but still good. <laughs> still good, I think. Uh, yeah, the, the boy in the glass ball, I remember it was so weird because it's like about an autistic boy who has seen a crime, right? But they can't contact him to like understand what he's about uh, or what, you know, what he has seen. So that uh, I remember that one freaked me out when I was a kid uh, or a young boy. Um, there's one I remember that's also kind of, I remember a long time ago, maybe two years ago, a lot of people in the Discord channel were talking about the smiley face murders. 
and there is a sort of like smiley face murder uh, uh, film about kids uh, <laughs> who, who who thinks that they are samurais and they're like chopping down people with katanas in the subway uh, they live in the subway and they're like you know haunting people and then they disappear through the through the to the tunnels right and they communicate by like writing graffiti and uh, yeah it's kind of stupid but it's that's i remember that one being quite good um yeah that's what i have to say about uh, nordic noir hope uh, you got some inspiration uh, and thank you for the question what did you do yesterday evening jag ställde en ganska enkel fråga om du vill vara oförskämd så kan jag ställa samma fråga om och om igen hela natten på ett helt annat ställe. Vad gjorde du igår kväll? Jag var i Göteborg. Vad gjorde du i Göteborg? Jag talade på ett möte, ganska välbesökt möte för fosterlandsvänner. Vi pratade bland annat om sådana svin som du. Och vet du, på tåget tillbaka i morse så hörde vi att två av er hade eliminerats. Vet du vad vi gjorde då? Vi hörde för att två poliser hade skjutits. Hör <laughs> du snuten, jag hade gärna gjort det själv. All right, I had quite a few more questions or answers prepared, but longer ones. Uh, there are some questions I can answer shortly because there they will be, I think. Uh, future episode of their own so slug farm who has been with me since the very beginning thank you so much for your support you're awesome one year now uh, he asks I live in a state in the US where the main agricultural crop is lawn grass yeah and my grandfather flew all over the world helping build markets for it I'd love a deep dive into the history and economics of lawns Right, yes, I have been thinking about this uh, since I have done one episode already now about uh, coffee and then I did a whole series about hemp. I thought I would start a new sort of uh, episode series maybe in spring about things like cotton, do some episode about that. Then one about wheat, maybe one about opium and of course about lawn grass. I know there's a lot to unpack there, like it was, I think, transcended uh, during, you know, the Baroque period uh, or the Rococo period, maybe, like uh, around the French Revolution, right? Like the uh, by the high aristocracy and the, you know, people wanted to imitate uh, the petit bourgeois, wanted to imitate the aristocrats as they always want to. And uh, because it, like, I think in the beginning, um, because it needs so much maintenance right uh, you it was seen as something that you couldn't have grass alone unless you you could afford to pay people to take care of it i think that was the idea sort of behind it but yeah that great question i i'm looking forward to uh talking to you about what you remember about your grandfather if you will share some stuff um and uh yeah that'd be lovely uh, Torchtrieb, uh, who joined this summer, is asking, this might be a bit too contemporary for the scope of the podcast, but I would be interested to hear your take on the wave of violence currently washing over Sweden. 
Oh, that's my annoying uh, sister-in-law voice that tears you apart. Uh, <laughs> sorry. To me, it all bears a curious similarity uh, to other places and times where the Sauron's eye of Western influence have landed before. According to Sibel Edmonds, modern Gladio is based in Turkey, which also seems to be the nexus of Swedish criminality. Uh, end of um, the question from Torchtrieb. Yeah, I uh, have been thinking a lot about this. I also have uh, been cautious, as you say, that I, I seldomly do two current things or two contemporary things, but uh, I think this one, because I have a theory that it goes back to Palme. Like, uh, I think it goes back to like that Wackel uh, hitman for the, yeah, for the uh, uh, World Anti-Communist League hitman Sven Hedin, right? Because he was stationed in the Turkish part of Cyprus. And so, you know, why would he have chosen that unless he had some contacts, some Turkish contacts? And also he is part of uh, setting up the PKK lead. If uh, you've listened to the Palme episode, you'll know what I'm talking about, which is, of course, like, yeah, the Kurdish uh, freedom fighters. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think it could be its own episode. Recently, there was a video released of some uh, rapper talking to one of the high profiles in one of these so-called armies or gangs or whatever. <laughs> and, they're, man, they're so high on their own supply. Like, they're bragging about, like, getting... Uh, weapons and, and explosives from the Turkish intelligence uh, agency and uh, yeah I'll talk about that it could definitely be an episode thank you for the question that's great yeah uh, there's plenty more questions when the painting sent a nice uh, recording I won't spoil anything but it's about uh, my answer is about the snowman yeti <laughs> And then maybe a possible Nazi connection. Actually, that was her question. If there's a Nazi connection, I at least have a, an anti-Soviet connection. Uh, pretty damn good one. This was the longest answer. I can't put this in the episode today or it'll go on forever. It's like, I think two hours is enough for a Q&A. And, and I'll keep releasing more than during the autumn in between the Stargate conspiracy episodes. I think that, that, that would be a fitting... Uh, end of this year somehow now uh, I need to relax a bit <laughs> somehow I mean, I'm not really relaxing I've paid, paid a lot of attention to this question but at least there's some like relief of uh, uh, just answering what you're asking um, yeah Holling Goats sent some good stuff Dempster sent good stuff uh, Reed made a nice recording my cousin from the Palma series also uh, he wants to know <laughs> He wants to elaborate on my beef with uh, Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, yeah, Reed's question sent me down a rabbit hole of uh, researching Bodhisattva Maoists in Tibet, as well as stories, uh, you know, about demonology of landlords from some peasant rebellions. Um, uh, Matt wants to know if Hitler is still alive <laughs> and what the damage was done to me in my youth to uh, to to be interested in all of this shit. And um, I will answer all of this. William from uh, OAS Info Service also made a recording. Uh, uh, he, he wants me to uh, reveal to my American listeners what I think about 9-11 and JFK. So, yeah, hopefully all of, of that and then more since uh, 
now I'll, I'll finally be telling my Spotify subscribers, you know, that this is happening, <laughs> that the Q&A is happening. So hopefully there, please send uh, questions um, uh, and I will do my best to answer them. Hope you all have a nice weekend. This is great. Really nice sitting down talking with you like this. Uh, yes, chip chop. Cheerio. Bye bye.